Section 32 of Waverley, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Waverley, or to Sixty Years Since, Volume 2 by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter 67. Happy's the wooing that's not long a doing. When the first rapturous sensation occasioned by these excellent tidings had somewhat subsided, Edward proposed instantly to go down to the glen to acquiesce the baron with their import. But the cautious Bailey justly observed that, if the baron were to appear instantly in public, their tenantry and villagers might become riotous in expressing their joy and give offence to the powers that be a sort of persons for whom the bailey always had unlimited respect he therefore proposed that mr waverley should go to janet gellatley's and bring the baron up under cloud of night to little Boulogne, where he might once more enjoy the luxury of a good bed in the meanwhile he said he himself would go to captain foster and show him the baron's protection and obtain his countenance for harbouring him that night and he would have horses ready on the morrow to set him on his way to the dutchman along with mr stanley work denomination i apprehend your honour will for the present retain said the bailey certainly mr mcweebly but will you not go down to the glen yourself in the evening to meet your patron that i would with ah my heart and mickle obliged you your honour for putting me in mind o oh, my bowden duty but it will be past sunset before i get back pray the captains and at these unsonsy hours the glen has a bad name there's something no that canny about old janet gellatley the lad he'll not believe these things but he was an eye-owner rash and venturesome and feared neither man nor devil and says seen out but right sure i am sir george mckenny says that no divine can doubt there are witches since the bible says thou shalt not suffer them to live and that no lawyer in scotland can doubt it since it is punishable with death by our law so there's baith law and gospel for it and his honour wouldn't believe the leviticus he might a believe the statute book but he may take his ain way out it's a dame to dungeon mcweebly however i shall send to ask up old janet this ain it's best no to likely them that have that character and we'll want davy to turn the spit for i'll gare eppy put down a fat goose to the fire for your honours to your supper when it was near sunset waverley hastened to the hut and he could not but allow that superstition had chosen no improper locality or unfit object for the foundation of her fantastic terrors it resembled exactly the description of spencer there in a gloomy hollow glen she found a little college built of sticks and reeds in homely wise and walled with sods around in which a witch did dwell in loathly weeds and wilful want or careless of her needs so choosing solitary to abide 
far from all neighbours that her devilish deeds and hellish arts from people she might hide and hurt far off unknown whatsoever she aspired he entered the cottage with these verses in his memory poor old janet bent double with age and blared with peat-smoke was tottering about the hunt with a birch broom muttering to herself as she endeavoured to make her hearth and floor a little clean for the reception of her expected guests waverley's step made her start look up and fall a-trembling so much had her nerves been on the rack for her patron's safety with difficulty waverley made her comprehend that the baron was now safe from personal danger and when her mind had admitted that joyful news it was equally hard to make her believe that he was not to enter again upon possession of his estate it behoved to be she said he would get it back again nobody would as same rival as to take his gear after they had given him a pardon and for that inch grabbit i could whiles wish myself a witch for his sake i weren't afeard the enemy would take me at my word waverley then gave her some money and promised that her fidelity should be rewarded how can i be rewarded so say real as just to see my old maister and miss rose come back and brook their ain waverley now took leave of janet and soon stood beneath the bower's patmos at a low whistle he observed the veteran peeping out to reconnoitre like an old badger with his head out of his hole ye hae come rather early my good lad said he descending i question if the redcoats hae beat the tattoo yet and we're not safe till then good news cannot be told too soon said waverley and with infinite joy communicated to him the happy tidings the old man stood for a moment in silent devotion then exclaimed praise be to god i shall see my bairn again and never i hope to part with her more said waverley i trust in god not unless it be to win the means of supporting her for my things are but in a bruckled state but what signifies wild's gear and if said waverley modestly there were a situation in life which would put miss bradwardine beyond the uncertainty of fortune and in the rank to which she was born would you object to it my dear baron because it would make one of your friends the happiest man in the world the baron turned and looked at him with great earnestness yes continued edward i shall not consider my sentence of banishment as repealed unless you will give me permission to accompany you to the judgment and the baron seemed collecting all his dignity to make a suitable reply to what at another time he would have treated as the propounding a treaty of alliance between the houses of bradwardine and waverley but his efforts were in vain the father was too mighty for the baron the pride of birth and rank was swept away in the joyful surprise a slight convulsion passed rapidly over his features as he gave way to the feelings of nature 
threw his arms around Waverley's neck, and sobbed out, "'My son, my son, if I had been to search the world, and would have made my choices here!' Edward returned the embrace with great sympathy of feeling, and for a little while they both kept silence. At length it was broken by Edward, but Miss Bradwardine? She had never a will but her old father's. Besides, you are a likely youth of honest principles and high birth. No, she never had any other will than mine, and in my proudest days I could not have wished a mere eligible espousal for her than the nephew of my excellent old friend, Sir Everard. But I hope, young man, ye deal nay rashly in this matter. I hope ye have secured the approbation of your ain friends and allies, particularly of your uncle, who is in loco parentis. Ah, we may take heed of that. Edward assured him that Sir Everard would think himself highly honoured in the flattering reception his proposal had met with, and that it had his entire approbation in evidence of which he put Colonel Talbot's letter into the Baron's hand. The Baron read it with great attention. Sir Everard, he said, always despised wealth in comparison of honour and birth, and indeed he hath no occasion to court the diva pincunia. Yet I now wish, since this Malcolm turns out such a parricide, for I can call him no better, as to think of alienating Hurley House and the rigs belonging to it. And yet, said he, assuming more cheerfully, it may be as well as it is, for as Baron of Bradwardine I might have thought it my duty to insist upon certain compliances respecting name and bearings. We look now, as a landless laird, weigh a torchless daughter, no none can blame me for departing from now heaven be praised thought edward that sir everard does not hear these scruples the three armonies passant and rampant beer would certainly have gone together by the ears he then with all the ardour of a young lover assured the baron that he sought for his happiness only in rose's heart and hand and thought himself as happy in her father's simple approbation as if he had settled an earldom upon his daughter. They now reached Little Verloin. The goose was smoking on the table, and the bailey brandished his knife and fork. A joyous greeting took place between him and his patron. The kitchen, too, had its company. Old Janet was established at the ingle nook, Davy had turned the spit to his immortal honour, and even Ban and Busker, in the liberty of Macweebly's joy, had been stuffed to the throat with food, and now lay snoring on the floor. The next day conducted the Baron and his young friend to the Dutchran, where the former was expected, in consequence of the successes of the nearly unanimous application of the Scottish friends of government in his favour. This had been so general and so powerful that it was almost thought his estate might have been saved, 
had it not passed into the rapacious hands of his unworthy kinsman whose right arising out of the baron's attainer could not be affected by a pardon from the crown the old gentleman however said with his usual spirit he was more gratified by the hold he possessed in the good opinion of his neighbours than he would have been in being rehabilitated and restored in integrum had it been found practicable we shall not attempt to describe the meeting of the father and the daughter loving each other so affectionately and separated under such perilous circumstances still less shall we attempt to analyse the deep blush of rose at receiving the compliments of waverley or stop to inquire whether she had any curiosity respecting the particular cause of his journey to scotland at that period we shall not even trouble the reader with the humdrum details of a courtship sixty years since it is enough to say that under so strict a martinet as the baron all things were conducted in due form he took upon himself the morning after their arrival the task of announcing the proposal of waverley to rose which she heard with a proper degree of maiden timidity fame does however say that waverley had the evening before found five minutes to apprise her of what was coming while the rest of the company were looking at three twisted serpents which formed a jet d'eau in the garden my fair readers will judge for themselves but for my part i cannot conceive how so important an affair could be communicated in so short a space of time at least it certainly took a full hour in the baron's mode of conveying it waverley was now considered as a received lover in all the forms he was made by dint of smirking and nodding on the part of the lady of the house to sit next to miss bradwardine at dinner to be miss bradwardine's partner at cards if he came into the room she of the four mrs rubricks who chanced to be next to rose was sure to recollect that her thimble or her scissors were at the other end of the room in order to leave the seat nearest to miss bradwardine vacant for his occupation and sometimes if papa and mamma were not in the way to keep them on their good behaviour the misses would titter a little the old laird of dutron would also have his occasional jest and the old lady her remark even the baron could not refrain but here rose escaped every embarrassment but that of conjecture for his wit was usually couched in a latin quotation the very footman sometimes grinned too broadly the maid-servants giggled mayhap too loud and a provoking air of intelligence seemed to pervade the whole family alice bean the pretty maid of the cavern who after her father's misfortune as she called it had attended rose as philly de chambour smiled and smirked with the best of them rose and edward however endured all these little fixatious circumstances as other folks had done before and since and probably contrived to obtain some indemnification since they are not supposed on the whole to have been particularly unhappy during waverley's six days stay at the dutron it was finally agreed that edward should go to waverley honour to make the necessary arrangements for his marriage 
thence to London to take the proper measures for pleading his pardon, and return as soon as possible to claim the hand of his plighted bride. He also intended in his journey to visit Colonel Talbot, but above all it was his most important object to learn the fate of the unfortunate chief of Glenogwich, to which him at Carlisle, and to try whether anything could be done for procuring, if not a pardon, the communication at least or alleviation of the punishment to which he was almost certain of being condemned, and in the case of the worst to offer the miserable Flora an asylum with Rose, or otherwise to assist her views in any mode which might seem possible. The fate of Fergus seemed hard to be averted. Edward had already striven to interest his friend Colonel Talbot in his behalf, but had been given distinctly to understand by his reply that his credit in matters of that nature was totally exhausted. The Colonel was still in Edinburgh, and proposed to wait there for some months upon business confided to him by the Duke of Cumberland. He was to be joined by Lady Emily, to whom easy travelling and goat's way were recommended, and who was to journey northward under the escort of Francis Stanley. Edward, therefore, met the Colonel at Edinburgh, who wished him joy in the kindest manner on his approaching happiness, and cheerfully undertook many commissions, which our hero was necessarily obliged to delegate to his charge. But on the subject of Fergus, he was inexorable. He satisfied Edward, indeed, that his interference would be unavailing. But besides, Colonel Talbot owned that he could not conscientiously use any influence in favour of that unfortunate gentleman. Justice, he said, which demanded some penalty of those who had wrapped the whole nation in fear and mourning, could not perhaps have selected a fitter victim. He came to the field with the fullest light upon the nature of his attempt. He had studied and understood the subject. His father's fate could not intimidate him. The lenity of the laws which had restored to him his father's property and rights could not melt him. That he was brave, generous, and possessed many good qualities only rendered him the more dangerous. That he was enlightened and accomplished made his crime the less inexcusable. That he was an enthusiast in a wrong cause only made him the more fit to be its martyr. Above all, he had been the means of bringing many hundreds of men into the field who, without him, would never have broken the peace of the country. I repeat it, said the colonel, though heaven knows with a heart distressed for him as an individual that this young gentleman has studied and fully understood the desperate game which he has played. He threw for life or death a coronet or a coffin, and he cannot now be permitted with justice to the country to draw stakes because the guys have gone against him. Such was the reasoning of those times, held even by brave and humane men towards a vanquished enemy. Let us devoutly hope that, in this respect at least, we shall never see the scenes or hold the sentiments that were general in Britain sixty years since. 
End of chapter 67. Recording by Elaine Webb, Bristol, England.